0: Hey there, I'm Beth Connors, a midwife and mom of two, but also your birth bestie. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into everything you need to feel confident, prepared, and in control from baby bump to delivery room, from practical tips to personal stories. We'll cover it all so you know exactly what to expect every step of the way. Let's get into it. Welcome back to episode nine of Your Birth Bestie podcast. I'm your host, Beth Connors. And in today's episode, we're going to talk all about labor induction. It's a topic that's become increasingly prevalent in modern obstetrics, with up to 40% of births in the U.S. involving some form of induction. I can tell you from my own experience, in my first pregnancy, my midwife scheduled an induction for me at 41 weeks, when I was only 37 weeks pregnant at that appointment, so an induction was in my head weeks before it even needed to be considered. Then I was induced without my consent at 39 and 6. I wasn't given my options being 7 centimeters dilated and not in labor yet. This was a rare thing to happen, so I had no idea what to do in this situation. So my birth story was written for me because I didn't know any better or didn't know the options that I had. And then the second time around, since my first daughter was almost 11 pounds, from literally my first OB appointment with with a midwife, it's still called an OB appointment, um, at 10 weeks, I was told by my midwife that I would need an induction. And at 36 weeks, I would need to try as many things as possible to help get my body ready for labor and hopefully have my baby as close to 37 or 38 weeks, because that's full term. So my baby wouldn't be too big. Even though I was a midwife and I knew I had options and that I could totally do it naturally, I was confident in that and confident in my body. But if I had not been a midwife with experience helping moms navigate their own journeys, I likely would have been taken advantage of and scheduled an induction that was medically necessary per a few of my providers that I saw. But to me, totally unnecessary. So I could go on and on about your birth rights and how to advocate for yourself and how to have a hands-off hospital birth with as little medical intervention as you want, but I actually do that in my online birth course. So if you're interested, definitely check that out. But in today's episode, I will be chatting about what an induction actually is and typical options of induction, what the heck a Bishop score is and why you need to know about it, How to avoid an unnecessary induction, and tips for a successful induction if that's what you choose. Okay, so let's first start by understanding what labor induction really means. Labor induction is the process of artificially initiating contractions to stimulate the onset of labor before it begins spontaneously. It's important to note that labor induction should only be considered when there are valid medical reasons, as it involves intervention and carries potential risks. There are various methods used for labor induction, depending on factors such as mom's health, gestational age, and how the baby is doing. These common methods include the use of medications such as prostaglandins or synthetic oxytocin, which you already know as pitocin. There are also mechanical methods like cervical ripening with a Foley catheter or amniotomy, which is breaking the bag of water. There are also natural methods such as nipple stimulation and acupuncture. But before I go into all of these methods briefly, let's just say an induction is an induction is an induction. No matter how you're trying to start labor, even for something like a membrane sweep that is considered a method to help labor begin, so that can be considered an induction technique too. And there's nothing wrong with going that route either. I had a few membrane sweeps during my second pregnancy, and you can check out that birth story in episode four if you're interested in the details and actually why I chose an elective induction with that baby. Yes, elective inductions happen too. And as long as you're informed and it's your choice, I totally support that. So let's talk about a few common methods of induction. And the first one is stripping or sweeping the membranes. When a provider inserts two fingers into the cervix and lifts the intact bag of waters off the cervix all the way around the baby's head. The benefits of this are that it leads to a slight decrease in the number of Pitocin inductions, and the risks are that the provider can accidentally rupture your membranes, increase the chance of infection with the exam, and it can be uncomfortable. The second one is breaking your bag of waters, or an amniotomy. And this is usually done during a vaginal exam with a crochet-like hook, and it's done to cause stronger, more frequent contractions to progress labor. And even though the breaking of the bag itself isn't painful, the exam can be uncomfortable and labor contractions do definitely intensify um, in most cases, which is the goal, but it can be sudden. And for me, I can talk on this for a second because I was holding my baby 45 minutes after my bag of water was broken, and I was not in labor prior to my water being broken. So labor for me went from zero to 100 in just a few minutes. So it's good to know ahead of time for sure that the contractions can intensify. An amniotomy can also increase the risk of abnormal fetal heart tones and increase the risk of infection. So this is why limiting cervical checks after your bag of water is broken is so important. And a side note too is that this should not be done until baby is well engaged in the pelvis to make sure there is a very small chance of an umbilical cord prolapse where the umbilical cord slips out before the baby does. And this is very rare, but it can happen in some instances. Using a Foley bulb or Cook catheter can also be a method of induction, and these are inflatable devices manually inserted into the cervix that expand and mechanically open the cervix. It's a way of helping dilate and efface or thin out the cervix as a cervical ripening method at the start of an induction to prepare your cervix to be more ready for labor, basically, and then Pitocin would ultimately be given when you are further dilated. Either the Cook catheter or the Foleyball balloon are filled with saline, and then when you're about 3 to 5 centimeters dilated, the balloon would fall out on its own. But if it doesn't fall out by the 12-hour mark, typically the balloon would be deflated and the next steps would be discussed. And these mechanical dilators can be painful, although I have seen women tolerate it without having any pain response whatsoever. And I've also seen moms request the epidural before they start this procedure. So there is a large spectrum of what moms experience. So it's really whatever is right for you and what you need in that situation. Next is Cervidil and Cytotec. And Cervidil is a medication inserted into the cervix on something like a tampon. It is much smaller though. And after using this as a cervical ripener, you will need to be monitored carefully for side effects. The next steps after Cervidil are giving Pitocin through your IV, just like the mechanical dilators, and one benefit of Cervidil is that it can be removed if any issues come up with you or baby, and there is a slight decrease in the C-section rate when Cervidil is used before Pitocin. The main risk here is that it can cause contractions that are too close together or too long, called hypersimulation, ultimately causing fetal distress. And then Cytotec is like Cervidil and it's inserted vaginally, but this one is a pill and cannot be removed. It might be more effective at ripening the cervix over Cervidil, but the risks are that there is a higher risk of uterine hyperstimulation and fetal distress. Uterine rupture has also been reported with this medication, and once it's given, it cannot be taken away. There are additional medications to be given though to treat issues that Cytotec may cause and you will be monitored as well with this medication. The next one is pitocin and you probably have already heard of pitocin but this is an iv medication ran by a machine so it's on your iv pump it's a little machine that gives an adjustable number of drops per minute and can be easily adjusted so you will start out with something like two units of pitocin and then every 15 to 30 minutes the dose would be increased so maybe you'd go up to four units as long as it would be appropriate at that time This medication can be stopped if anything happens and you will need to continuously monitor baby with that electronic fetal monitor as well just to see how baby is doing and how much medication is safe for you and baby. Pitocin can cause uterine hyperstimulation and fetal distress just as the others and can cause increased postpartum blood loss if used for more than 12 hours. So if you find yourself considering labor induction and before you agree to any of these interventions, it is crucial to prepare yourself for the process. First and foremost, open communication with your healthcare provider is key. Discuss your reasons for considering induction, any concerns or questions, and then ensure that you are well informed about the potential risks and the benefits. Another thing about inductions that you need to know is something called the Bishop Score, and this is a tool used to assess the readiness of the cervix for induction. The Bishop Score takes into account factors such as cervical dilation, effacement, position, consistency, and fetal station. This score helps determine the likelihood of a successful vaginal delivery and can guide the choice of an induction method. I will post a link in the show notes to a diagram so you can reference this and calculate your own score after a vaginal exam later in pregnancy if an induction is being considered. If your Bishop score is high, like over 8, it means there is a better chance that an induction will lead to an established labor pattern. If your score is between 6 or 7, then it's unlikely that labor will be starting soon and an induction may or may not be successful. And then if your score is five or below, it means that labor is even less likely to spontaneously start soon and an induction is unlikely to be successful. Sometimes though, with medical inductions, we don't have a choice and we do all that we can to help natural labor progress as safely as possible. So this is just a guide and not something to stress out at all about. Next, I want to talk about how to avoid unnecessary inductions, and then if you choose to have an induction, how to increase your chances of having a positive experience. So, some tips first on avoiding unnecessary induction are to first choose to forego routine fetal testing unless there is any indication. ACOG acknowledges that there is no evidence showing an improved outcome based on routine fetal testing for post dates pregnancies. Also, calculate your own due date based on your date of conception and your last menstrual cycle instead of relying on ultrasound dating. Also, don't let your due date be changed based on a scan after 12 weeks. The later the ultrasound, the more unreliable it is next is not to induce for a suspected large baby period and this one i talked about struggling with myself as a second time mom and i was pressured by my providers to speed things along as i approached my due date with the fear that i'd have another big baby i wish i would have been more experienced on releasing my birth fears and exploring my previous birth trauma as well as shifting my mindset at the time It was one of the contributing factors to why I chose an elective induction at 40 weeks and two days, but looking back, I really, really shouldn't have, even though I had a great birth experience. Just an example of always learning and growing and being able to help you as well navigate your own birth experience. I live and breathe this as a midwife and birth educator, but also remember so well how it feels to be the patient in these situations. And most importantly, saving the best for last, choose a care provider that respects you as the ultimate authority over your birth. One that has a low induction rate and one that won't recommend induction until 42 weeks. So you did all the things to avoid an induction in the first place, but whatever happened, you are now agreeing to an induction, medical or elective. So let's talk about how to increase your chances of having a positive induction experience and prepare both physically and mentally. Things like staying well-nourished, getting plenty of rest, and engaging in activities that help you relax and maintain a positive mindset. Also, like I mentioned before, educating yourself about the different induction methods and their potential implications is so helpful when preparing. But here's a couple more tips worth mentioning. Consider choosing Cervidil over Cytotec as a cervical ripener if needed because it can be removed. A Foley bulb or a Cook catheter are both non-pharmacologic options as well if that's more appealing to you. If you need to have your cervix ripened, choose to go home and let labor develop overnight at home where you are calm and safe and in your own environment. You will want to stay to be monitored for the first few hours, though, but this is an option, and some clinics even place Foley bulb catheters in the clinic and you don't have to be admitted for this part of the early induction. Also, if you can choose a time, start an induction at night so you can sleep while you're in early labor. And because oxytocin flows easier at night, this can also really help your labor begin. Next, when using Pitocin, start at a low dose and increase no more than every 30 minutes until active labor is reached. Some providers are really pushy about increasing every 15 minutes, so definitely keep that in mind. Once you're in active labor, slowly turn off the Pitocin and see if your body will just take over. Also, avoid an epidural if you can because they may slow down labor and increase the need for more pitocin, which then increases the risk of fetal distress and going down that whole cascade of intervention. Another tip is not to manually break your waters until active labor is well established to limit prolonged rupture of membranes. Inductions can unfortunately take several days in some cases. And then lastly, limit vaginal exams once your waters have ruptured. Lastly, I just want you to know that during the induction process, it's important to have a support system in place. Surround yourself with people who understand and respect your birth preferences, whether it's a partner, doula, or trusted friend. Continuous support can help you cope with the intensity of labor and make informed decisions along the way. Birth is also so unpredictable, and unexpected deviations from the original plan can happen. Stay flexible and maintain trust in your body's ability to give birth. Embrace the journey, knowing that you have made informed decisions that align with your unique circumstances. That concludes today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me on Your Birth Bestie Podcast. If you enjoy listening and found this information about inductions helpful for you, I invite you to follow the show. And if you could even go the extra mile and rate or review the show, that is seriously the best way to support me. You can send me a screenshot of your review at bethconners.com forward slash review, and I will actually mail you a gift to say thanks. So I appreciate you more than you know, and I will see you back here next week.